Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. And these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need their attention, then uh, get their attention for one of those Bibles. They'll give you one so that you can follow along. It's marked for you at 1 John chapter 4. Pastor and author Brian Chappell tells the story of a woman in his neighborhood who put a sign in her yard, Mom on Strike. He says the words appeared on a sign planted in the front yard of a home near his. A young mother, tired of the whining, the back talk, and the lack of cooperation from her family, declared herself to be on strike. She put that sign declaring her resistance in her front yard, and she moved out of the house into a treehouse in the backyard. From there, she vowed not to come down until things had changed. A local television station got wind of the story and interviewed the family. While the young mother's comments interested me, he says, what I really wanted to hear was the husband's explanation. And garnering the sympathy of husbands everywhere, he shrugged toward the television camera and he said, I have the kids doing their chores again, and I've told them to cool it with a sarcasm. We're trying to make amends and do whatever we can to get her to come down. Now, his comments, though tinged with some humor, revealed an assumption that is the cause of much spiritual pain. The assumption is this, that our words and our actions can atone for our wrongs. Now, on a human level, the husband's remarks make perfect sense. When we've had a problem with people, have failed to meet their expectations, or we've caused them pain, we typically resolve to make amends. And so wayward children, spouses, employees, students, and politicians all vow to make atonement for their sins with the hope that their actions will compensate for their wrongdoing. This perfectly reasonable human response gets us into trouble, however, when we try to approach God in the same way, to compensate for our wrongs. When we know we failed or frustrated God, we long to make amends. We search the scriptures for some spiritual discipline or sacrifice that will make us right with God because we do not want him to be, as it were, on strike. We long for God to come down from whatever treehouse he occupies and re-enter our lives with his transforming power and his compassionate blessing. But how can we make God come down? When his standards are so very high. Now most people think that's going to be by what they do. And we hear often of people thinking of when they go to heaven and how they're going to approach the Lord. Stories of people who die and go to heaven are often filled with them talking to an angel to see why they should be allowed into the pearly gates. And they give them their spiritual resume. Sometimes talking to Peter. A man died and faced the angel Gabriel at heaven's gates. Now, you won't really face Gabriel or Peter actually at the gates, but that's the illustration. And said the angel to the man, here's how this works. You need a 100 points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things you have done. I'll give you a certain number of points for each of them. The more good there is in the work that you cite, the more points you'll get for it. When you get to a 100 points, you get in. Okay, the man said, I was married to the same woman for 50 years, and I never cheated on her, even in my heart. That's wonderful, said Gabriel. That's worth three points. 
Three points, the man said incredulously. All right, well, I attended church all my life and I supported its ministry with my money and service. Terrific, said Gabriel. That's certainly worth a point. One point? With his eyes beginning to show a bit of panic. All right, well, how about this? I opened a shelter for the homeless in my city and I fed needy people by the hundreds during the holidays. Fantastic. That's worth two more points. Two points, he's now in desperation. At this rate, the only way I'm going to get into heaven is by the grace of God. And Gabriel said, come on in. (laughs) Now, today we conclude a three-week topical series titled Grace-Centered Living. It's designed to help us change, to help us grow in godliness. Now, next week is Mother's Day. And as I've mentioned, in two weeks, we'll have only one service, that at 1030, devoted to the ordination of two of our men in three weeks, we're going to begin a series through the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the first two weeks of this series were focused on the need to see ourselves and in particular our sin struggles clearly as God sees them so that we never make the fatal assumption that we've arrived and so stop growing and changing. We've seen that God sees us with x-ray vision and he graciously shows us our issues in his word, and he works in us to change. But in this last message, I want us to see that before God sees our sin, that for those who are his children, he sees us through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And that should actually motivate us to greater growth. Now, some of you are familiar with John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress. In the children's version, late on the pilgrim's journey, they discover a wonderful mirror. There's nothing unusual about the front of the glass. However, on the back of the mirror appears an image of the crucified Lord Jesus. Everyone who looks in the mirror's face sees an ordinary reflection that includes the blemishes and the scars that always accompany our humanity. Yet anyone who observes these same persons from the reverse side of the mirror sees only the glory of the Son of God. This amazing glass from Pilgrim's Progress pictures the answer to how we can be holy in this life. Our holiness is not so much a matter of what we achieve as it is the grace our God provides. In fact, one way to define God's grace is this. His willingness to look at us from the perspective that sees His Holy Son in our place. Another way to put this is we need to see the indicative before we see the imperative. Everybody clear on that? Well, you see, that is often how the letters that comprise your New Testament are structured. With the first portion written in what in the Greek language, and you remember that your New Testament was first written in Greek. The first portion is often written in what's called the indicative mood. It tells us the way things are. In particular, it tells us who we are in relation to God. And then after telling us who we are before God, and especially who we are before God in Christ, then it'll go on to tell us how we should act. The last part of the book is written in what's called the imperative mood. What we should do because of who we are. You see, friends, who we are precedes what we do. 
and it should motivate what we do. So the New Testament books of Romans and Ephesians are written in this way. Today's message is titled Grace-Centered Resources. And you'll see that title at the top of the insert that we have in your program. If you don't have that outline yet, I encourage you to take that out now. And at the top, it says the title is Grace-Centered Resources. Today, we want to see what the Bible says about who we are in Christ. As understanding that is one of the great resources that God gives us as the basis and the motivation for what it is he requires us to do. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank you for gathering us. You've gathered us. We're here because of you. It's only because of you that we have the physical health to be here. It's only because of you that we have the spiritual desire to be here. Thank you for gathering us. You've gathered us for the purpose of allowing us the privilege of praising you and worshiping you, but also of learning of you so that we can be gradually again this week, changed further into the image of your dear son. And so, Lord, we need your aid, as always, so that your purpose for us is achieved in the proclamation of your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I say, first of all, in that outline, then, as we look at these grace-centered resources that God provides, that God's grace is the basis of our acceptance. God's grace is the basis of our acceptance. Remember what I said earlier, one way to define God's grace is his willingness to look at us from the perspective that sees his holy son in our place. So we're going to take some time to see what Jesus has done in our place and how that affects the way God sees us. I say in your outline, Jesus' death satisfied God's anger. So is God angry? Is God angry at sin and at sinners? As we'll see in a moment, the answer in the Bible is yes, but you would not know that from some Christian authors. Steve Brown is a guy on Christian radio, no relation, with Key Life Ministries, who regularly extols the beauty of the Christian's position before God. He has many good things to say on his Key Life program. It's not so much what he says, it's what he doesn't say. He wrote a book, the subtitle of which is, quote, God's not mad at you. Some time ago, I heard a very good Christian speaker say to an audience filled with both believers and unbelievers the same thing. God's not mad at you. You know, friends, I would love to be able to say that wherever I go and to whomever I speak. But I don't have the option of leaving things out of what God says in his word. Things like Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people. Notice the wrath of God. The next chapter of the book of Romans says, You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. So, yes, most definitely God is righteously angry at the violations of his standards by the creatures that he made to reflect his character back to him. Our sin and all of us are sinners is really treason against God. And he would be less than holy if he were not angry at evil. 
In fact, it would be evil of God to be less than furious in the face of evil. So we've all got a problem. We've all sinned, and God is rightly angry with us because of it. And so to appease that, a payment must be and will be made to atone for our sin and satisfy the righteous anger of God. So that's the bad news. We've sinned, God is angry, and a payment must be made. The good news, the gospel, is that God made the payment for us in God the Son, come as man, Jesus Christ. That's why I've asked you to turn to 1 John 4. Note with me in verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now notice, it tells us what to do in verse 11. We ought to love one another. But the reason we ought to do these things is because of what God has done. So knowing what God has done motivates us, gives us reason for what it is we're to do. And what has God done? He has sent his one and only son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, the Greek word that's translated atoning sacrifice is a word that means to satisfy the anger, the wrath of someone who has been unjustly wronged, in this case, God. It's an act that relieves hostility and it satisfies the need for vengeance. So on the cross, Jesus turned aside God's wrath against our sin by dying in our place. All of God's anger, all the wrath that we would ever deserve was poured out on Christ on the cross. The Bible says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus never sinned, but he took the punishment for our sin and the fury of God's anger at that sin. The wrath of God was poured out on him on the cross. Jesus absorbed all the fury of a holy God for sin, all of it, so that you don't have to pay that yourself. But hear this, friends. This is only for those who have had the death of Jesus applied to them. If you have never come to God through Jesus, if you have never had the death of Jesus applied to you personally, then that subtitle of Steve Brown's book, God's Not Mad at You, that doesn't apply. He is still. And rightly so. The Bible says in John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now, how does that help you and me with our struggles and with our desire then to change? Well, among other things, it should mean we don't believe that God has rejected us because we sin. If we've come to Christ, if we are Christians, if we have a relationship with God through him, then we should not believe that God has rejected us because we sin. Consider this. When Christ died, you weren't yet born and you hadn't committed any personal sin as yet. Have you ever thought about this? He died knowing fully what you would do and what your struggles would be. And he still died for you. So now in time, now in your life, 
when you manifest those struggles, when you sin, when I do, when I sin, we should not think then that God has rejected us. God died knowing all of that. Christ gave his life for us. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that means a number of things. The fact that Jesus took the, the anger of God as the basis for our acceptance with God. It means a number of things, but I have in your outline a couple. One is this. We're really worse than we could ever imagine. We're worse than we could ever imagine. Pastor, author, and professor Jack Miller used to say, cheer up, you're much worse than you think. And why would he say that? Well, the idea was for us to realize that God loved us and Christ gave himself for us despite the fact that we are much worse than we really know. You and I are much worse than we know, but God knows every piece of it. Let me just briefly remind you of the fact that we're worse than we really even think about. The truth is, friends, we sin because we are sinners by nature. That's what we are. God restrains the effects of our sin so that we're not as bad as we could be, none of us, but it permeates our entire being. The way we think, the choices we make, the way we feel, our mind, our will, our emotion. The Bible teaches we sin in our desires, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. So it's not just what you do, it's what you say. It's not just what you say, it's what you think. It's not just what you think, it's what you want. Yikes. And then it's worse than that. It's not just those things we commit, those sinful desires and thoughts and words and actions. It's the things we omit in failing to have the right desires, think the right thoughts, say the right words, and do the right things. You getting the idea? We're worse than we thought. And yet God has still accepted us in Christ. That's the cheer up part. If he would accept you knowing all he knows about you, then there's nothing you can do that will cause him to reject you. Jesus pointed out how deep it is for us when he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember he said, after saying that you've heard it said that if you murder, you've broken the law. But he says, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And after saying that you have heard it said that anyone who commits adultery has broken the law. Jesus said, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So our sin is so deep. It permeates every part of us. That we should absolutely reject the idea that there's anything that we can do to atone for our own sin or somehow make up for it. It could never happen. There's too much of it. It is who we are. It's part of the fiber of our very being. We are worse than we could ever imagine. But, I say in the outline, God's love is greater than we could ever hope. We know that God's love was shown most profoundly for us. In sending God the one and only, God the Son, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Many passages in the Bible speak of his death on our behalf as our substitute. But know what Ephesians chapter 1 says. He has freely given us his grace in the one he loves. You see, God the Father loves us 
in our connection with God the Son. God loves us as we are united to Christ. The Bible teaches we're united to him, Romans 6, Colossians chapter 3, in his death and in his resurrection. And as we are united to Christ, the love that God has for God the Son, he has for us. Freely given us his grace in the one he loves. Now hear this. As long as God the Father loves Jesus, he will love us. How long will that be? Can that ever change? Jesus' death satisfied God's anger. I say in your outline as well. Jesus' life, his death satisfied God's anger. His life met God's standard. His life met God's standard. The Bible says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that has to do, as I'm going to try to demonstrate, with Jesus meeting God's holy, perfect standard for us. Because that passage says we have been justified. And the word justification is a term that's borrowed from the legal world. It describes a guilty person being pronounced righteous by the judge. Though he's not actually innocent in reality, the judge declares him to be so. Justification is a positional idea. It describes our legal position or our standing before God. It does not mean that we will live perfectly righteous lives, but that our standing with God is righteous. Although none of us is righteous in practice, we are righteous in our status before God. That is, God has declared that believers are righteous positionally, despite the fact that they are still sinful in practice. Now, let's make sure we know what we mean by righteous. Biblically, it means meeting the standard or fulfilling all the obligations. You could call a ruler or a yardstick righteous because it measures up to the exact standards in the case of a yardstick of 36 real inches, no shorter, no longer. A righteous person fulfills all his obligations. He meets all of the standards that he's expected to meet. And the righteousness that believers receive, now hear this, is the righteousness of Christ. You don't meet all the standards. I don't meet all the standards. But he did. And his righteousness is credited to your account when you come to him. When we're united with Christ, we inherit the merit of Jesus' perfect life. And as a result of that justification, as a result of the fact that Jesus' life met God's standard, then the Bible can say these blessed words in Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, this means practically a number of things for us in our lives. I have one of them in your outline for you. Our acceptance is not our performance. Our acceptance with God is not based then on our performance. And that's the only way it could be. If you consider what the Bible says again about our sinfulness, then how could we do enough and do it well enough in order to recommend ourselves to God and be accepted by him? Completely impossible. And the Bible says that explicitly in a number of places. 
Romans chapter 3, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Now, when it says by works of the law, just arguing from the greater to the lesser, if no one will be declared righteous by the perfect law that God gave, then are we foolish enough to think that we can replace that law with some other set of works that we will do and somehow we're going to be able to recommend ourselves to God that way? If it can't be done by the law, friends, it can't be done. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Again, Galatians 2. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith that is believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus met God's holy standard. And as a result of that, our acceptance with God is not based on our performance. That's a wonderful thing for us since we can't perform to the perfection that God requires. So what did Jesus do? The law is God's perfect standard. None of us could keep it. The law showed us our inability to keep it. But Jesus did. He kept it perfectly. Galatians 4 says this, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, and notice this next phrase, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Jesus comes, God the Son, God in the flesh. And he is born under the law and subject to the law. You remember the early days of his earthly sojourn. His parents, when he's eight days old, they go to offer sacrifice in accordance with the law at the birth of their their son. When he's 12 years old, we find him at the temple. He's talking to the elders in the temple and confounding them. He's there at 12 years old, which I find significant because that is the age at which a Jewish boy had his bar mitzvah. You know what that word means. He becomes a son of the commandment, a son of the law. Jesus perfectly kept God's law, the only one to ever do so. He was born under the law so that he was then qualified to redeem those who labored under the law but could never keep it. And so our acceptance with God is not based on our performance. And I say in your outline, our acceptance cannot change. God has accepted us in Jesus when we come to him believing who he is and what he has done. And that acceptance then cannot change. And one way that we know that, many promises of that sort in scripture, but one way we know that, is that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead shows the Father's acceptance of the entirety of Jesus' life and death and work. Romans 4 says this, He was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. You see, we are declared righteous based upon the righteous life of Jesus. We are justified because Jesus perfectly met the standard. But the way we know that Jesus perfectly met the standard is that God the Father approved of his entire life, death, and ministry by raising him from the dead. He raised him so that we would then have life. We would have justification through his perfect life. Philippians 2 says a similar thing. He was obedient to death. He was obedient throughout his life and in everything Jesus did, even to the point of being obedient and submitting to death by the will of the Father. He was obedient unto death. 
And because his whole life, even leading up to death then and culminating in that death, therefore, God the Father exalted him. Friends, when we come to Christ, the Bible teaches we are united with him in his death and in his resurrection. So all the benefits of his death and his resurrection belong to us, including the fact that God the Father accepted the entirety of Jesus' life and death. We will be accepted by God, hear this, for as long as Jesus is accepted by God. And how long will that be? God's grace is the basis of our acceptance. And I say in your outline, God's grace is not only the basis of our acceptance, but also of our approval. Our acceptance and our approval. Now, as children of the Father, if we have come to God through Jesus, we're going to be reminded in just a bit we are in his family. We are part of his family. That's why we call him Father. That's why we refer to one another as brothers and sisters. We are in the same family. And as children, we want to please our Father. And even though we are still sinners, even though we still struggle with sin, it is our desire now, God-given desire, to please our Father. The Bible says that in a number of places. We make it our goal to please Him. Colossians chapter 1 says, Live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. But we're not born with the ability to live up to His standards. And that's why Jesus had to come and live and die for us. So on the one hand, we want to please God. If you belong to Christ, you have in your heart that burning desire to please God. But the whole reason Jesus had to come and live and die is because you don't have the ability to do that. So we've got this conundrum. I don't know what that means. I just like to say conundrum. (laughs) We've got this dilemma. I say in your outline this, though, that we are enabled To please God. That when we come to Christ, he does something else. He enables us now to do what we were not able to do before. We are enabled to please God. Now, to be sure, not perfectly this side of heaven, but we can now do what we were unable to do before. How is that? What does God do when you come to Christ that enables you, gives you the ability you didn't have before? The writer of Hebrews says this, I will put my laws in their hearts. That's a quotation from Jeremiah 31 and what we call the new covenant. Where God said through the prophet Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant. You can't keep my law. You've clearly shown you can't keep my law. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my laws in your hearts. Now, you may remember that the law God gave and all of his commandments is a reflection of God's character. The law says what it does because God is who he is. And the law sets out for us what kind of character in humans will be a reflection of what God is like. And God says what has to happen if you're going to live as I require is that the law will have to be worked into your internal being. So it's not just an external set of rules, but becomes an inward set of desires. And the question is, how will these laws get into our hearts? How will we get from the external thou shalt to the internal I will? Now, the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, was given in part to show 
some of the past that will not get us from here to there. Some of us may have become stuck because we're still going down one of these blind alleys that will not get the law of God into our hearts. So quickly want to go through three of these blind alleys that will not get you. From thou shalt to an internal I will. The first one is fear. Fear will never change the human heart. Remember when God gave the law, it was the most frightening experience the people of God had ever known. When God came down on Mount Sinai, there was thunder, there was lightning, there was a blast of trumpets, there was the imminent presence of God. The people were trembling and they said to Moses, you go up there, we don't want to get near it. It was the most frightening experience in all of the Old Testament and yet it did nothing to change their hearts. Some parents make the mistake of believing that strictness, discipline, and abundance abundance of punishment will yield the kind of character we want to see in our children. Now, there's most definitely a biblical place for discipline. And in fact, it will modify behavior. But discipline does not change the heart. Parents, I recommend a book to you that we have in our resource center called Shepherding a Child's Heart. Fear will not change the heart. Secondly, prosperity will not change the heart. There are many people who believe the greatest problem of humanity is social or economic. If people do not have enough money, if they live in appalling conditions and they have little hope, then they'll all, then they'll turn to evil. And so the way to change this is by programs of economic aid and social, social reform. Now it's true that if a person is taken out of a situation of inadequate resources and they put in a position of hope, it'll likely change patterns of behavior, but again, not change the heart. And how do we know that? What does the Bible tell us about that? Well, God brought his people into a land flowing with milk and honey. He brought them out of the desert and into a land of freedom and opportunity. He gave them every material blessing you can imagine, and it did nothing to change their hearts. You cannot erase the graffiti of sin, the patterns of moving away from godliness by changing the outward circumstances of a person's life. And here's a third thing that won't change it. Religion won't change it. Many people think if you come to church, you start reading the Bible, you say some prayers, you do some religious things, then that's the trick. The Bible makes clear that although that may change some patterns of behavior, it will not change the heart at its most fundamental level. How do we know that? There have been no people in history more religious than the Jewish people. They took God quite literally when he said in Deuteronomy 6, Tie my laws as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your, and on your gates. And so to this day, you will see Orthodox Jews who have these phylacteries tied around their heads and on their hands and attached to their doors and gates. And these are little boxes in which are small pieces of paper on which are written passages of Scripture. You can't be much more religious than that. Yet one of the most Orthodox Jews who ever lived once said, You know, I look at these laws and I know they are good, but I find there's another law at work within me, a kind of inclination of my soul that moves in another direction, so that while I want to pursue the law that God has given, I find that what I'm actually doing is moving in another direction. You know who that is. That's the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. And he says, I have found, even as someone who has thrown all my energies into a godly life and religious pursuit, I found the inclination of my soul is too strong in the other direction. The law could not change him. It was overwhelmed by the prevailing inclination of his soul. 
And so some of you, us, we're struggling at a very practical level. As we look at our, our children, we raise them in a disciplined and an ordered home. We shower them with material blessings. We give them a dose of religious education by putting through all the programs in the church. And then we find there's still a prevailing inclination in another direction. And we throw up our hands and say, what can I do? The great question for all of us is, how do we get the law of God from out there to in here, in the heart? Some of us are struggling not only with our children, but in our own lives. We would have thought that by now we have become different because it hasn't happened as we thought. How do I get from thou shalt to I will? Well, remember what Jeremiah said as quoted in Hebrews 10. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will. God says, I will write it. The entire history of the Old Testament has demonstrated how difficult it is to get the law of God from out there to in our hearts. And God says, you're unable to do it, but I am able and I will. And through the prophet Ezekiel, he said, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I will move the prevailing inclination of your soul and turn it to a new direction. When you come to Jesus, this then is the fancy term regeneration. When you come to Jesus, you are given spiritual life. More commonly, regeneration is being born again. It's the work that God alone can do to change the inclination of your heart. And when he does it, you find something deep within you that causes you to want to know him in a way that you didn't before. You find that you have a hunger and a thirst for the word of God you didn't have before. You feel drawn to Christ. When you were once dead to the things of God, you now become responsive. It's a miracle and it is God who does it. Perhaps the best illustration of this is the way human life begins. The living seed comes, and in a wonderful way, in a mystery, and a miracle, in a moment, life is conceived. You think about that. It happens instantaneously, in a moment. And it's either happened in a woman's body or it has not happened. There's no halfway on this. It's either been implanted or not. It's either there or not. And how do you become aware of it? There are changes. The woman feels different. This is how physical life begins, and it's a picture of how new life begins in the human heart as well. It's the direct work of the Spirit of God to implant the seed of life within your soul, and it either has happened or has not happened, and there's nothing in between. The fact is there are only two kinds of people in the world, the quick and the dead. And quick is an old English term for spiritually alive. There are the spiritually alive and there are spiritually dead. And how do I know it has happened? Because there are changes. It shows. You first respond to the message by which it comes, the gospel. You're now willing to confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and you have a desire to learn of Him and to follow Him. And God says, I will bring this interchange, this fundamental change to the inclination of your soul, and the first thing you know, you begin to feel different. You have a hunger for the Word of God you didn't have before. Some of us remember a time when we were unresponsive to God. You may have been in church and it was all a bunch of mumbo jumbo to you. 
In a sense, you may as well not have been there at all. Some of you are in that situation right now. What is this guy babbling on about? But there was a change if you've come to Christ. And you began to have a desire to be clean because something had changed inside and you expressed that faith in Jesus and repentance from sin. Now, it's natural for us, friends, in our self-sufficiency to want to be given a program or a plan to fix stuff ourselves. So I've got a problem with my heart. Give me five steps, 12 steps, five keys or some other method. But when it comes to this most fundamental issue at the heart of Christianity, it's something that God does. God does for you what you cannot do for yourself. This is what then separates Christianity from all others. All other religions are a ladder that you climb to God. Christianity is God coming to us. Has this happened to you? Do you have the life of God within you? Do you hunger and thirst for the living God and for truth and for holiness? Are you trying to manufacture change from the outside, going through the motions, and you know it's a blind alley that's leading to nowhere? I've got good news for you. If right now inside you're saying, that's what I want, hear this, it's the first evidence that God has done his work in you. The human heart is graffitied over with sin. And God has to rewrite over that heart his laws and redirect our inclinations. And how will that happen? The life of God gets implanted in a miracle inside the human soul when we come to Christ. So there should be no defeatism now for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has regenerated you. He has made you spiritually alive and he's given you the ability, even though you struggle with sin still, To do what you couldn't do before. And understand friends. God will never reject us. Though he can be displeased. But he gives us the ability. And the desire to please him. We're enabled. By the spirit of God. To please him. Lastly in your outline. We are always. In the family of God. We are always in the family of God. The Bible says this, we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. As long as Christ is an heir of the promises of God, then we shall be also. How long will that be? Forever. We have an inheritance, hear this, and God does not disinherit his children. God has given us the resources to live in the way he directs. He's given those by his grace and through his grace, all based on what Jesus did for us, making us accepted by God, getting our approval through Christ and then through the spirit that only Christ gives us. And so your take home truth is this lasting change comes as we live in and we live outwardly. The grace of God. Now we're going to bow and pray. For any of you who have never come to Christ, you just go through the motions. You show up at church, you go through the religious thing. Sunday morning, you leave. But you know there's no spiritual life there. But God has moved on your heart this morning to say, that's what I want, that's what I need. We're going to bow. 
And as we do in prayer, you say from your heart to God in your own words, Lord, I recognize my sin that I'm apart from you. And I recognize that within me, nothing can change that. But Jesus Christ has done what needs to be done. And so I realize I'm a sinner. I recognize that Jesus has done the work in his life and death. I repent. That is, I'm going to follow you. Go your way, not my way. I ask you, Lord, to save me and to change me. And he promises to do that very thing in this moment. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for gathering us. We thank you for teaching us from your word the beauties of the grace of God. We thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us to our own devices, giving us a standard that we had no ability to keep because of our own sin. You could have justly left us to ourselves. Lord, you intervened. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have done what we could not do. We thank you for his perfect life. We thank you for his death and all of the practical ramifications of that for those who come to him. Lord, I ask you to help us as your people to appropriate and apply those truths in our daily living then. Help us to live lives that reflect that we own and understand and believe wholeheartedly these blessed truths from the Lord Jesus. And Lord, for those who came into this room going through the religious motions, I ask you to save them in your mercy and your grace. Apply what Jesus did to them as they reach out to you. This is a miracle that only you can do. And Lord, we give you the praise and the honor for doing so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.